0: He's controversial, 20,
1: 30, 40, 50 years from now,
0: he's outspoken,
1: you will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great-great-grandkids,
0: and he tells it like it
1: is, that you watched a great athlete named The Franchise, and he was the greatest world's Heavyweight Champion
0: of all time. He is The Franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to The Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. wrestling hitting the record button that would help before before we get started right here and right now and this is the triple threat podcast being brought to you for episode number 49 here on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting platform if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined by my tag team partner the one and only John Paz. That's on the two man power trip. But on this show, we are joined by the pride of New Brighton, Pennsylvania, the man from Bethany College, the guy who literally put the extreme in ECW. He is the one and only franchise, Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome to episode number 49.
1: Man, someone's been doing their homework this week. <laughs> The, the new bright one threw me a little bit, but then when you said the Bethany Collins, I was like, "Holy shit!" They're really, uh, they really like diving in. You're not with the IRS, are you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, Shane. You know, I uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to give out some of my sources, but you know, I uh, I got I, it's not Magnum TA phone. It Might be Magnum PI. I'm trying to study up on anything and everything uh, franchise. But yeah, Shane, here we are, at episode number 49. I mean, getting so close to that. 52-week mark, almost a full year in the books on this show, which is just, it's so crazy to believe that we've done so many of these, but there's so much content still to come out of this Triple Threat podcast. I love doing this every week, and I know uh, you enjoy it as well. So as we get started here with episode number 49, a lot to talk about, going to cover a few topics here, but Shane, you had a big weekend that I want to touch on first, and it featured the retirement Of a tag team legend, a pro wrestling uh, legend, if you will, as Bobby Fulton hung up the boots for the last time and you were part of that show. And obviously you think of Bobby Fulton, you think of the Fantastics, you think of his partner Tommy Rogers, you think of a great innovative team. But Bobby Fulton hanging up the boots uh, now officially for the last time. You know, it's hard to see another one of these great legends uh, step away from the ring.
1: Well, you know, when I, anytime I see something like this, I'm, I'm, I'm just automatically taken back when I was a kid in the business or, or, or breaking into the business and looking at the guys that were ahead of me, the stars of that day and thinking like, you know, I remember, you know, Mick Foley and I talk about this quite often at Dominic Danucci's school. Uh, you know, Dan, those, you know, we're okay, but those guys on TV are great and, you know, you, you could just see something different there. The timing, the experience, the the, the uh, way they carried themselves on TV. Uh, and the Fantastics, were, that that was right in the time frame when the Fantastics were coming off that, that you know, that early beginnings of the hardcore uh, with the Sheep herders then uh, and having some incredible matches. And, you know, to me, Tommy and Bobby had that sort of mix of uh, – uh, flash and show and uh, and the wrestling basics you know they could, they could mix it up and do it all and uh, you know it, to me it, it wasn't my cup of tea. Uh, you know, I was born into the heel guys and that sort of thing, but you could see as a young guy, especially as a young babyface coming into the business, you could see that both of them had charisma, they had uh, command of the ring. And uh, could really do something that was special. The, the problem for them, I think, was that the, the, the uh, Rock and Roll Express had been getting that exposure and was, you know, a little bit of a step ahead of them. And they were always, you know, not that it was proper uh, or right, but they were always being compared to. Oh, there's that other, you know, good-looking guys tag team like the Rock and Roll Express. They, but to me, like somebody's a huge UWF Mid South fan. You know, I was keenly aware of who they were and, and, and what they were doing in the business at that time. And so every time I see somebody like a Bobby Fulton, you know, finally tapping out and, and leaving the business, it just sort of brings all that back into the forefront of my of my memory, you know, and taking me right back to that time of, you know, being that young kid in Freedom, Pennsylvania, learning at Benucci School and looking at this daunting task ahead of you, this mountain to climb of all these incredible athletes and and, and entertainers that were in the wrestling industry at that time. Uh, And, you know, just seeing that that revolving door keeps revolving. New ones keep coming in and the old ones keep going out. Uh, It's definitely the passing of an age.
0: And it coming from a, a great tag team, like you said, of the Fantastics that in an era I mean, you know, not to get lost against anybody because I would take any of those tag teams today versus any crop of tag teams that's coming up or is is currently around. But, yeah, I mean, do you you think they really did get lost? Because you can just start rattling the teams off, whether it's the Midnights or the Fabulous Ones or even the Sheepherders or the the Fantastics in there. And then the WWF, the Hart Foundation, the Bulldogs, all these teams – do you think the sure. Fantastics, do you think they kind of get lost in the grand scheme of things because there were so many great tag teams in the 80s? Yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's no detriment to them that that they were in a class of a, you know, what is arguably the greatest history, class in the history of professional wrestling of tag team wrestlers. <clears throat> so that's no slam against the Fantastics. It just bespeaks of where the industry is was then, where it's gone since. I think today there's a a ridiculous uh, ignorance of the tag team division. You know, we sporadically see the WWE attempt to make uh, the, the tag team division relevant again, and it sort of always falls by the wayside for some reason. Uh, but, you know, back then, you know, the tag teams were, were on par, not that they were equal to the World Heavyweight Championship, but the world tag team titles held a relevance. And if you were a world tag team champion, that was relevant, made you relevant in the business and any wrestling fan knew instantly who you were. And at that time, like you said, there was a overabundance of incredible teams that were out there wrestling. And if we sat here and pulled the books out, it would be, the list would be a lot longer than the ones you just spouted off the top of your head. Uh, it, it really was the era of tag team wrestling. And, like so many things from that era that I don't understand that, that worked so well then, why they've been lost in the passage of years. Tag team wrestling seems secondary to everything now uh, in the WWE. Uh, managers seem n- not secondary. They seem relegated to the heap of history in the WWE. And, and, and those were the types of things that me, as a young wrestling fan, Brought me to the table, got me glued to the television every night that it was on, uh, watching those things and intimately knowing each of those characters. Uh, But Bobby Fulton and and Tommy Rogers definitely hold hold their own space in the pantheon of great tag teams of wrestling history.
0: And and Bobby Fulton, in his own, has a great story of how he got into the business and, and really coming up through Memphis and experiencing really the old guard of Memphis that kind of passed the torch off to the Jerry Lawler, Jerry Jarrett guard, which, you know, obviously had a stranglehold uh, on Memphis and that whole Southern territory for so long. But, you know, Bobby Fulton in his own right, another one who, uh, you know, great innovator uh, in terms of what he did in the ring. Um and seeing yeah. him retire and being a part of this show, like kind of what are your your thoughts and reflections on the 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 weekend and the show itself, obviously honoring uh Bobby in a show he was, you know, promoting, but still, you know, he's the main focus. So give us kind of a recap of what you got to experience in this uh retirement show this weekend. Well,
1: the, the first thing that stuck out to me was with uh I'm getting an echo. Are you guys hearing that? No, you're good. Okay, good. Uh, The the first thing that stuck out at me was the fact that I I always talk about the loyalty of professional wrestling fans. And uh, like all politics, all wrestling is local. So when you have a guy from an area like Circleville, uh, 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 Columbus, uh, you know, that that, uh, whole area of of Ohio, uh, to those people. You know, Bobby Fulton was a guy, a kid that left here and done well in the big business of professional wrestling. And you could see that in spades on Saturday night. You know, the fans were really there uh, to turn out for Bobby Fulton to say goodbye, to say thank you. And uh, it was pretty cool to watch, you know, pretty cool to see, uh, you know, every dog should have his day. And and, and Bobby had his on Saturday. Uh, great turnout. Uh, you know, close to a thousand people. Uh, the, the the convention before the show uh, was, was, you know, the the, the day it start. In my book, it started a little bit too early, and and that sort of spread the people out. But it was consistent throughout the day. There was a throng of people in there throughout the day. Uh, but I'm sad to report, like I told you guys before we started recording, uh, at, about a half hour after I got there and got set up and got rolling and you know, between the fans coming and et cetera, I, I asked somebody, "Where's Al Oliver?"
2: You know, the former
1: <laughs> Pittsburgh Pirate, and they pointed about. He was exactly on the opposite corner of the building from me, like uh, about as far as he could be from me. And I saw him sitting against the wall. And I, you know, by the time I finished up signing some things and started to make my way over to introduce myself to him, uh, you know, I along the way I'm running into you know, Kevin Sullivan and Tracy Smothers and Tommy Rich and Bill Eadie and, 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 and there's just this was like big, long line of guys to go by. And each one was a five, six, seven minute conversation. And by the time I got over to where his table was, he had gotten up and left. They told me to go get lunch. Well, I went back to my table and, you know, started signing and taking pictures, et cetera. And, uh, by the time before he came back, uh, it was time for us to then go and get lunch, our, our off period. And I said, well, I'll see when I get back. And when I got back, he wasn't in the building. So I don't know if he was just contracted for uh, a couple hours or what. But sad to report that I did not get to meet one of my childhood heroes, Al Oliver, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, but, you know, I, I came close. So the next time uh, I'm going to make damn sure that's the first thing I do before I stop and say hello to any of my wrestling friends or anything else. I'm getting right over to Seattle, Oliver.
0: <laughs> and you know what? I got to say hopefully um, you know on a on a random wrestling show maybe uh we can get Manny Sangi to uh pop in and uh, uh you could cut the uh you could cut the uh, the bread with Sangi there, you know, you guys can uh talk about some of those pirate teams.
1: <laughs> man, you're you're pulling out some great names, man. Kent Colvey and you know, uh, Dave Parker, Willie Stargell. In fact, I got a story about the 1979 world series, which was of course two years after Al Oliver had been traded away. Uh, I was 16, I believe at the time. Uh, and uh, a friend of my cousin had a job where she was overseeing cleaning crews at the uh, old three river stadium, which is where the old Pittsburgh pirates team and the Steelers won all those Super Bowls. Uh, so I went up to, you know, just to make some money. That'd be a great job. And, you know, hard job. Work through the night. You had to start at the top of the stadium and sweep all the garbage, you know, peanut shells and cigarette butts and everything, all the way down to the bottom. And they brought this great big, usually like, 18, 24-inch hose up, vacuum cleaner, and suck it all up. Well, you work through the night because during the, the World Series, of course, there's a game today and there's a game tomorrow. And... uh so as we're working through the night to get the stadium cleaned up, you know, we're getting ready to take our lunch break, and it's right about 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. And the Pirates come out on the field to start having batting practice. At this time, we're out in the outfield area, and all of a sudden you start hearing crack, 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 crack. Ball after ball is getting cracked. All of a sudden you start realizing balls are flying over the fence. Willie Stargell had come up for, for batting practice. And, uh, you know, he's nailing these balls over the wall. And the last one up at bat, he cracks. I'm looking through the, you know, if you look at the old pictures of the Three River Stadium. There was like a cutout area in the wall that was a walking area behind there. And one of the balls had come flying over the wall and hit the back wall and was getting ready to bounce back out. And I jumped up in front of the... The, the the window area like that looked out to the to, you know to the field and grabbed that ball it was the last ball that he hit over the wall and what's oh so wow about that is that willie stargel hits the game winning home run in the last game of the world series to give the, the pirates the world series so uh never ever got a chance to meet willie stargel uh or get him to sign that ball but uh you know just it's it's definitely a big keepsake memento to me and one that'll pass on to my kids because that's a cool part of Pittsburgh
0: sport lore. That is uh, really cool, man. That's a, that's a great story. Now, I know I don't want to divert too much into the uh, to the history of uh, this great game of baseball, which I could easily do. But that Oliver trade is a huge trade uh, in the history of. I mean, like basically three franchise, four franchises, really, because it was a four player or four team deal that sent. Yeah. I mean, star after star in different directions. Um, Al Oliver being one of them. I remember Burt Blylevin went to the Pirates in that yep. one. The Mets sent John Milner to the Pirates. I know that. And I'm that trying right. to th- And John Matlack went from the Mets to the Rangers. So it was a huge, huge deal. At that point, so I'm gonna I'll stop it there. I know John's probably rolling his eyes as I. uh, Yeah, you got a
1: good you got a good memory because that's that's accurate and and Al Oliver went to the Rangers.
0: Right. right? Yes. Correct.
1: Yeah, and yeah, was I remember it it was a big big talk in Pittsburgh at the time because you can imagine the '72 when when Clemente was lost, uh, trying to take relief to the uh, uh, Puerto Rico his home his home uh, island. Uh, You know. It, the pirates were like sort of in a, like in a slump coming out of that. And then the team sort of gelled and, and the stars of that team were San Gian, Manny San Gian at catcher, uh, uh, Al Oliver, uh, Willie Stargell, obviously, uh, you know, they, they had, you know, a handful of people that pulled up and, and sort of pulled together, but you know, the, the pirates had been built about, around Roberto Clemente. He was a true superstar of his day. And, uh, you know, Al Oliver was a big part of bringing the Pirates back. And, you know, within seven years, they would win a, a World Series again. So, you know, that's no small thing in in, in uh, Major League Baseball. And the fact that a small market like Pittsburgh, would be able to do that, uh, you know, spoke volumes.
0: Such a great team, though, looking back, obviously. We could go on and on, but uh, I, I, like I said, John's probably rolling his eyes, and uh, nobody wants to hear me talk about baseball. And the Mets were so bad in the 1970s that... When you do your education on uh, your favorite team's history, there's a couple dead years, and '79, uh, <laughs> the '79 era where the Pirates dominated is uh, is one of those dead years. But I want to welcome John into the fray here, who's been very quiet and very methodical. Yeah, he's getting ready to uh, to kind of hit you with some uh, some fun stuff because we're gonna we're gonna come back to the Bobby Fulton Show because I want to talk about the match that you had there. But John also had an interesting weekend. I think I'm the only one who had a, a boring weekend. John spent the weekend uh, out in New Jersey. We were promoting a, a, a signing for uh, the subway location in Kingsburg, New Jersey, featuring an autograph signing with King Kong Bundy. So, John, I'm going to let you take over here. I know you had some, uh, some fun times with KKB over the weekend.
2: Yes, very, very fun times with him over the weekend. I feel like his reputation is a little overblown. He is a, he is a great guy, a great guy to deal with. And, obviously, he's got some heat with Honky Tonk Man and some other guys in the business. But I was asking him, you know, who are some guys, like, you get along with? Or who are some guys in the business that you like? And two guys that he mentioned, and pretty much, I wouldn't say the only two, but two of the big names that he mentioned. He said he always liked Bruno, always respected Bruno, which was, you know, uh, which was good, obviously. Um, sure. And then, he, and then he said he always liked Shane Douglas. He wishes that. Really? Really? Yes, he wishes he had more conversations with you. He said you're a good guy. You guys get along, you know, in the brief time that you talked. And that's he said that's one of the guys he'd always wanted to get to know more because you seem like such a smart guy. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I've always liked Chris. He's always been a great guy. He was one when I was up there in my last run. You know, I was having we were you know on some things together at, at that time and. You know, he was, like, trying to tell me, like, you know, look beyond at that kind of thing. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I always found Chris to be a great guy. And for a guy of his size, uh, well, well, check, check that. I don't want to finish that statement. It's, uh, it's, I got ready to say that it. It I knew it didn't sound right. I was going to say for a guy his size is great. Chris was a great worker. I mean, you look at a, a big guy like that, to go in the ring and do, like, you look at the bump that he and uh, Hogan took off the top of the cage, or he took off the top of the cage for Hogan, I should say. Uh, you know, that was impressive stuff. Stuff that, like, when I was coming into the business, he had never seen that before. And I always found Chris, as a wrestler, to be a, a damn hard-working guy, a guy that never seemed to complain. I never heard him complaining in the dressing room, as, as so often so many guys do. Uh, and, and that makes the atmosphere really you know, poison, like this like in the well type of thing. Um, but I've always gotten along great with him and I always respected him. And, and every time I see him, I always had a good conversation with him. But, uh, you know, it, it's funny how as, as time goes by in this business, you know, names start falling by the wayside that people seem to forget or, or don't give their proper due to. And, and that's easy to do. I mean, this is an industry of a lot of big egos and a lot of big names that come and go. That's really easy to do, but, you know, to me, King Kong Bundy. keep in mind, he was one of the guys, one of the heels, that at that time, uh, when wrestling first went into the stratosphere, uh, you know, I mean, we can pass him up accolade around here, Vince McMahon certainly deserves his credit for that, uh, as everybody knows, I don't give much credit to him, but he certainly deserves his credit for that, uh, but... the the talent that he was booking at that time and King Kong Bundy being one of those were guys that could get in the ring and entertain the shit out of the crowd and give the crowd their money's worth. So that when the next time a pay-per-view came or an event was coming to their town, the fans would make damn sure they went to see that. Why? Because the last time they came or the last pay-per-view they watched was so damn good. King Kong Bundy was a huge integral part of that, as much as as Jake the Snake Roberts, as much as Hulk Hogan, as much as Paul Orndorff, Harley Race, uh, even Roddy Piper. King Kong Bundy was a big part of that because he was the mainstay, staple guys for the the old WWF, uh, which of course preceded WWE. So uh, major kudos to to uh, uh, to Chris King Kong Bundy, and you know I, I was doing that. I'm going to make damn sure the next time I see him, I talk, have a long talk with him to, just to, uh, you know, I. when I'm around guys of that stature, I always get this sort of like, uh, they're up here and I'm down here type of, of thought because of they, them being in front of me in the business. And, uh, you know, I don't want to sit there and seem like the old haggard grizzled veteran talking to them or something, you know? So I, I've, I've always enjoyed, always, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever had a negative conversation with, uh, with King Kong Bundy.
2: And he did have a very similar Vince McMahon story to you. Just I don't want to get maybe too much into it on the air, but let's just say, um, you know, Vince maybe playing uh, for the other team a little bit. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too far into it, but he had a very similar story to what I've heard from uh, from the franchise.
1: Well, we really have to have a conversation
2: the next time <laughs> I see him, Ben, <laughs> just to sort of corroborate
1: facts and information as somebody likes to make sure my research is is spot on i want to make sure i go straight to the horse's mouth somebody who was there and lived the history so i can bring that story to public (laughs) maybe (laughs) i'll get a pulitzer for it
2: (laughs) (laughs) now did you ever wrestle him whether it may be or maybe
1: mid
2: midset? oh nothing never wrestled him oh wow okay no
1: look I, i mean remember at that time I was a 200-pounder, 200 210-pounder, maybe. Chris is a big, big guy. I mean, massive big. And su- definitely super heavyweight. No, I never, ever got to the ring with him. Uh, when I went up there to do jobs early in my career, uh, thankfully, they didn't put me in with Chris. Uh, I was in with guys like uh, Harley Race and Paul Orndorff, Jake Roberts, Macho Man, uh, Butch Reed, and it might have been somebody else. But, like, those kind of guys, you know, the guy that could move around and do, like, sort of wrestling stuff, but more closer to my size. And back then, when I sit next to Chris, I looked like one of his legs, you know? It it, it didn't look like I looked like an opponent for him.
2: We always talk about larger-than-life guys. Andre the Giant sticks out to me. Obviously, King Kong Bundy, Big John Studd, Hulk Hogan, these just big, larger-than-life monster guys and these monster characters. Even a guy that's not huge in stature, but was larger than life in Roddy Piper. What do you think about that being totally gone from the business that we know today? There is no larger than life characters. There's no one really to kind of have that impact that those guys had.
1: Well, I I think in large part that falls on Vince's shoulders. He's the guy that's running the company, uh, regardless of what uh, the sheets say or, or the, 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 documentations for, you know, the documents for the company say, um, so I would say that falls square on Vince and if not on Vince, on Stephanie and, and, and Hunter, you know, you, it, it's your job. If you're running the company to elevate somebody on that card to that superstar status. Uh, but that being said, I think in large part, uh, what is wrong with the industry today is the way the kids learned. The way the kids learned was let's go out and do everything we're seeing everybody else do. And so there's nothing that separates wrestler A from wrestler B, from wrestler C, from wrestler D. It's all different flavors. You, know, you got French vanilla, you got old fashioned vanilla, you got vanilla bean, but it's all vanilla. Uh, and when you're watching the wrestling today, the, the, the example I always give people, JP, is you know, back in Bruno's day, and you guys are probably too young to remember, obviously too young to remember, but uh, if you had put head to toe black body suits, covered every inch of skin, couldn't tell, you know, just from any tights or boots or whatever. Would you be able to know Bruno San Martino from Superstar Billy Graham, from Chief J. Strongbow, from Andre the Giant, from Dominic DiNucci? Of course you would. They all were built differently. They all wrestled differently, had their own sort of distinct style. Um, in my generation, would you have known me from Taz, from Tommy Dreamer, from Raven, from Sandman? I'm pretty sure you would have been able to do that. Today, I'd, I'd place the, the uh, challenge. Would you be able to know, uh, say, uh, a Miz from an AJ Styles, from a Daniel Bryan from somebody else? Maybe, maybe. If you were very close and had a keen eye for the way that they execute their moves, but they're all built the same, they all sort of dress the same, uh, they're, they're, It's just it'd be like having you know, 10, 20 of the same people lined up next to each other. And, you know, to me, that that just sort of lack of individuality is something that I think is really lacking in the business today. When I came into the business, everybody, every one of the old timers in the dressing room. And that was pretty much everybody ahead of me in my mind. Uh, They would tell you, find a way to be different, kid. You got to be different. And how do you be different in in an industry that is literally done everything like Scott uh, Irwin told me? very early on to show up in Montreal, uh, you know, as he's trying to tell me how to be different, he said, he's telling me, y- you can't just try to be different in certain ways because everything's been done. We've had Frankenstein's monster. We've had mummies. We've had cowboys and Indians. We've had this, and we've had that. He's going through this long list. And then he told me, find pieces of wrestlers that you admire that exhibit similar traits to you, and then take pieces of them and make sure you. The last thing he said to me was, "Make sure you put a big heap and dose of yourself into that." And he, I really credit him with being the one that gave me the sort of direction to find that franchise character. But you know, I don't know if anybody's doing that today. At the shows that I go to, nearly every single weekend, I'm seeing kids go out that possess. Astounding physical capability. I'm seeing kids that go out and are working their asses off, busting their hump. So there's nothing lacking in those two departments. But I'll watch match one, match two, match three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and I see the same match basically over and over and over and over and over again. Like I always tell kids, I'm doing a seminar, nobody reads a book and gets the end of chapter one and says, That damn chapter one was so good, I'm going to go back and read it again and again and again and again and again. They want to get to chapter two to chapter three to chapter four, building to the climax of the book. And if you go back and you watch these matches today, it it is a criticism, but it's not meant to be personal to anybody. It just is a a commentary on the business today. And I think that's in large part what's driving the lack of there being a Rowdy Roddy Piper or a Bruno San Martino or a Hulk Hogan or a Ric Flair. Uh, that, those larger-than-life, or a Dusty roads, those larger-than-life personalities that could command a television, a uh, television set back then, uh, a, a screen today, um, it's lacking. It's lacking in space in the industry, and I always tell kids when I'm doing seminars, if, if I were a kid in the business breaking in today, those would be the guys I'd be looking to. I wouldn't be looking to watch Monday Night Raw or Smackdown or something else. I'd be looking to those old-timers that became those large and life characters, in large part because of all the stuff that I just mentioned.
2: It is crazy to think, like, of all the years that went by in wrestling, it's like, oh, yeah, who who was, you know, the big star in 07 or something? I mean, you just completely forget for this huge chunk of wrestling, I'd say, for almost the last uh, maybe 15 years or so. You just, like, the big chunk is missing. And it's funny, out of the 80s, you can literally just say, you know, like, Oh, my God, Orndorff, Piper, and Bob Orton, and Big John Studd, and Bundy, and Andre. There's so many legendary great wrestlers that each had their own personality, each stuck out. And if you think about it, if you ever told them, like, oh, you have to make sure you say this, this, and this, um, and you have to say it in order, I just can't picture them ever wanting to do it or ever agreeing to do it. It just wouldn't work for them. Well, you'd be a
1: fool to tell Piper that, or Jake Roberts that, or Paul Orndorff and Bobby Heenan that. Uh, why? Because they were the great, some of the greatest talkers in the history of wrestling. Uh, but those guys also had done their homework. They were keenly aware of what their characters were and what they weren't. Uh, would Roddy Piper's character stop and kiss a baby? Hell no. That wasn't his character. But might Bobby Heen try? Eh, maybe in some certain circumstances. Would another character possibly... But they they didn't have to be told what their character was because they knew their character. And the shows were being built around the characters that they had already possessed coming into WWE in large part. You know, Jake Roberts had already been uh, Jake the Snake. Uh, Paul Orndorff had already been Paul Orndorff. Uh, Hulk Hogan was already Hulk Hogan. But, you know, given a different face, if you will, in WWE, uh, from heel to baby face, uh, Harley Race had already previously been hardly raced pretty proficiently um like i always tell people my 12 year old son could have booked that that group of wrestlers to, to a wrestlemania or to success um in the, the next generation after that generation the kurt hennigs the brett harts the jim neidharts they had been weaned in the industry at the time that those guys we just mentioned were on top so they had been taught properly and learned properly uh, the next generation, the Undertakers, the Steve Austins, the Shawn Michaels, the Razor Ramones, they had been taught from the previous two generations. And so, but each subsequent generation lost a little sliver of something that the previous generation had in, in that department of the character de- development department. Then, as you come forward from that, now we're what, two or three generations removed from that. And I said this when I was head of talent relations in TNA. You know, in 10 years, we're going to be stuck with all vanilla because all of these kids are going to the ring and they're all doing the same stuff over and over again. Yeah, there might be a slight variation in the way they do it, but it's all still basically the same thing. They're dressing the same. Tell me how many wrestlers you've seen go to the ring in the last 10 years with long tights with tribal artwork on the side, with a 5 o'clock shadow and overgrowth, with earrings and and a beard, or, you know, facial hair, uh, uh, a necklace on, you know, cool-looking haircut, and, you know, boots that have something written on it. How many many wrestlers have you seen like that? A hundred? Two hundred? They're all built and dressed the same. Uh, There's, you know, because of the the way that they execute their moves, you're not going to find guys like King Kong Bundy that are going to go out there and do the types of moves these kids are going to pay. So by and large, kids like that in the business today sort of get overlooked and pushed beyond because everybody wants to play towards that low hanging fruit, you know, what all the fans expect. Great promoters, great bookers, uh, look for the, the high hanging fruit. What's different? What's gonna draw me money? And I would scream it out from the mountaintops. What's gonna draw you money is to find somebody different. Somebody that's not like all those kids that are vanilla. And nothing against those kids, put in the proper context, those kids would all draw incredibly well if they were put in the, in the right proper situation with the right talent that knew how to lead. Like I, we were talking about Abyss who was on the Bobby Fulton show this past week. And the thing that always astounded me about Abyss is that I watched him go to the ring with guys his size and have great matches. Guys a little smaller than him and have great matches. And I've seen him go to the ring with AJ Styles and have great matches. Uh, Chris was able to go, Abyss was able to go to the ring and have great matches with anybody. That's the kind of guy I want. Uh, a big bastard like that that can go to the ring and tear the house down with anybody. That's the guy I want. Yeah, he's not going to do a flying head scissors. He's not going to do a moonsault and land on his feet. He's not going to do any of that. What he'll do is he'll put asses in the seats for you and draw your money. Uh, that's what the industry has to get back to. So, like in the in- when, I, when we say the industry and the way we're talking as the trends and things like that, we invariably have to look at the WWE. That's the NFL of our industry right now. And if those things are lacking in the industry, you then got to look at the people that are running that company and ask what is it they're doing or not doing that's who, that's leading to this, lending to this. Uh, and clearly, there's a uh, there's an aberrant. Uh, level of lack of character development, and there is a, an abhorrent level of the overlooking the, the span of what professional wrestling can be. It's not all moonsaults and landing on your feet. It's not all aerial acrobatics. Wrestling, the wrestling drew me. Go back and look at Bruno San Martino, how much money he drew. I, I guarantee you, you can look at every tape you'll ever see of Bruno. He never once in his life did a moonsault land on his feet. He drew money everywhere he went. Um, so how? the passage of time only gives you so much of the argument. Uh, great wrestling in my book spans the eons. You know, a great match. And I can look at a match from 1950. there was a great match. And and there, I, I might be able to say, well, there's pacing things in it or something that's different from today. But a great match in 1950 in 1960, 1970, 80, 90, 2010. And now is the same thing. It all possesses the same ingredients. And that's my long-winded answer to your question.
0: (laughs) Uh, But it's all about the larger-than-life characters. And uh, I think we could still all get lost in that era where they were. And, you know, when Bundy came back in the mid-90s, you know, he can kind of say that he feels as if, um, you know, he might have been brought back just to be buried. You know, he was promised a big push, and obviously he was kind of stuck in the mid-card, never really uh, materialized into doing anything big. And, you know, he kind of stands out at that point in in 95, 96, because, you know, everybody was kind of changing a little bit, and and Bundy's look was maybe more catered to the Hogan era. But still, that's who everybody remembers 30 years later. We we all remember where we were on Saturday morning, or when uh, Bundy crushed the Hulkster's ribs on Saturday at this main event. Even if you're not a wrestling fan, you know him from his crossover success. And and I think in 30 years, we're not going to be saying that about a lot of today's guys. And that's not a knock at anybody currently working today. It's just a different business in a different world.
1: Well, it's a reflection on the era more than a knock on anybody. But here's a litmus test that we can apply, and we'll use King Kong Bundy as the first example uh terry funk once said to me shana you have to ask yourself if you were walking down a dark alley and somebody walking in the other side at three o'clock in the morning saw you coming their way when they saw you would they turn around and walk the other way or would they keep walking and say, hey man what's up how you doing tonight uh now ask yourself about king kong bundy if you ran into the king kong bundy a guy like that at three o'clock in the morning big what 450 pounds you know, six foot four, six foot five, bald, badass, walk through that alley. Would you keep walking and say, "Hey, man, what's up?" or would you turn and walk the other way? And Bundy clearly passes that test—the Terry Funk test.
0: <laughs> oh my God! Forget about it. I would. Uh, I'd run if there was any way to run. I'd do the uh, the Looney Tunes jump in the air with the smoke underneath me of my silhouette. You know, I'd do anything I could to get away. <laughs> From Bundy, but speaking so of <laughs> but speaking of dark alleys, and I want to go back to what we were talking about with uh, the the Bobby Fulton Retirement Show, a very interesting night for the franchise as you faced one of your uh, greatest uh, nemesis in the history of your career. And when I say meeting this guy in a dark alley, if he's wearing his chains and he's wearing his Pitbull attire, then uh, that spells bad news for the franchise. But a very rare in-ring confrontation with the Pitbull Gary Wolf, and obviously your history with Gary Wolf being what it is. uh, Looking across the ring, do you still get those uh, butterflies, knowing that there's so much between the two of you that – you know whether it was ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, or two thousand seventeen or two thousand eighteen. There's still gonna always be something between you and Gary Wolf. Well, you know
1: the thing that I found with time is it it can soften some edges. You know, like you take a rock and throw it in the ocean, and after a hundred or two hundred years, it'll rub it down pretty smooth. And and feelings, uh, I don't find that to be the case. It seems like time makes it like a stronger whiskey. It gets stronger with time uh you know with gary wolf all working aside uh you know gary wolf ended up in an operating room with a medical halo surgically screwed into his skull for three months uh after a match with me in philadelphia dcw arena now that's going to be something that would wear on you aside from the fact that you've had to endure this three months of hell but on top of that you know, this is a lifelong affliction. You know, he had a, 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 a bilateral fracture of C2. So if you know anything about the vertebra, C1 is the axis that sort of sticks straight up. C2, like a donut, sits on top of C1. Uh, to put it in perspective for the layman out there that doesn't understand, that is the exact same fracture that Christopher Reeve, Superman, got and ended up in a wheelchair paralyzed from the neck down wow. for the rest of his life. Uh, so this was a very serious, this wasn't some little hairline fracture and, you know, in and in an unimportant, not that any vertebra is unimportant, but you know, like in a in a non-weight bearing vertebra lower in the lumbar region, and this was a C2 fract, bilateral fracture of C2, meaning on both sides of that, of that ring, it was fractured in half uh, and could have ended up in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. I, uh, he still to this day, uh, has, pretty significant physical pain from it and, and doors, you know, an awful lot from that. So I, I, I can imagine from his perspective, if the, t- if the tables were turning, that had happened to me and I had lived through 20 plus years of physical pain like that. I, I, I could understand somebody being pretty pissed off and holding the grudge. Um, the fact that this was only the third or fourth time that we would wrestled since that momentous match at ECW, uh, and then, from a personal point of view, for Gary, uh, when you look at it from Gary's point of view, from ECW, uh, you know he he rightfully expected that that was going to be. that, and Bruno San Martino, 20 years before that, had had this neck broken and forged this second half of an amazing career off of that broken neck. And I think that Gary thought at that point that Paul Heyman was going to, shoot him to the top of the uh, of the roster and give him this, this singles run. And maybe he should have. I don't know. That would be a question you'd have to ask Paul. Um, but, you know, I know that Gary still harbors ill will toward it. Uh, and, you know, so, yeah, to get in the ring and and face off against a guy like that. And I won't go into it on, on air here. Gary and Anthony, Pitbull too, had a pretty uh, – uh, What's the word I want to use? Uh, infamous isn't right. A pretty notorious career in the Philadelphia area prior to the, their time of coming, and for some time after they came to UCW uh, on the side. You know, they they weren't exactly the kind of guys you wanted to run into it at night, um, especially if you own a certain bookie certain amount of money. Um, <laughs> you know, so yeah, I mean, these are guys that are legit badasses that you know, came up on the streets in a very different manner than I came up, you know? So the, the level of hostility there, I'm I'm sure has got to be great. And anytime, whether it was 1996 or, or 2018, stepping in a ring with this guy, you you know, you've obviously got to always, that's always on the present in the back of your brain, you know, the, the things that have happened. and, And like I said, haven't softened with time. And, uh, Saturday proved to be pretty
0: much the same. So much history though, and you think about the trajectory of the franchise character and really propelling you into the absolute stratosphere around that time. I mean, the injury aside, I mean, that was the genesis of the the francine and the franchise relationship and, and teaming. And, yeah. and I mean, it really it, it took off from there, and it, it just so happened that the unfortunate injury of Gary Wolf was not that it was a minor storyline, obviously it was a major one, but in the grand scheme of it, the fact that you guys just absolutely took off afterwards is unbelievable. So is there that general ECW um, camaraderie between you and Gary Wolf, like a lot of you guys have, or is there still that little bit of like, you know, side side look heat that you guys may have just because of the injury, you know, taking so much off Gary Wolf's career?
1: I, I, in my book, uh, keep in mind that Bobby Fulton shows the dressing room for kFA. You know, so the baby faces are in one dressing room, the heels are in another dressing room, and it's kept legitimately that way. I, you know, very few times in the matches that I've, I've wrestled on Bobby shows, uh, you know, a heel might wander over to the baby face side or a baby face over to the heel side, and within seconds you hear Bobby Fulton screaming his head off, pissed off. Uh, you know, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him in any person kind of way, but I walked in, I'd walked right past him, didn't realize it, uh, walked in, the, he was sitting at the far end of the building, uh, right by the doors and right where I walked in, I walked right past him, you know, carrying my stuff in and, uh, went straight by him and when my manager Chris had pointed out to me, I looked over in his direction and right as I looked in his direction, it looked like we locked eyes and he turned his head away from me. And uh, so it seemed to me that he was, you know, still harboring some ill will.
2: Now it's pretty amazing that match. I mean, has it happened many years since? Obviously, the the main feud from ECW. Have you wrestled that many times from now since? No. Then?
1: No. They, uh, like I said earlier, I, I I believe in my head there's three matches that I recall vividly. It may be four. Let me think here. There was a time, uh, it, I can't remember if it was ECW or it might've, It's probably one of the hardcore homecoming shows. I wrestled him here in Pittsburgh at the golden dome. Uh, I wrestled him obviously at ECW one time after that, that was the match where he got his head caught in the ropes from Francine, got up and tightened the rope on his neck. Uh, and this match, I don't believe—it it was three or four. This was either the third or fourth time that we'd wrestled. So, no, it hasn't been—there hasn't been a long history there.
2: It's interesting to note that also in that feud in ECW, you basically win the feud, essentially. And it wasn't commonplace at that point for the heel to really go over on the babyface and for the heel to win the feud— did that strike you at all uh, different as far as psychology of ECW and the booking that was different and kind of a cooler way to kind of go about ending feuds? Well, you know,
1: to be fair, Paul had pushed me pretty strongly through ECW, and that seemed to me to be the kind of game changer, especially when you go back and look at the really tasteless promos that Franny and I did leading up to the, that rematch uh which culminated first with the throwdown, which created a riot in the e c w readup and then the of course the match uh there was you know an awful lot of uh- re- I, as we were doing them I remember there were several times that Fran and I went so we can't say this this is like like i remember the the time that i we did the swimming one in the uh in the the shit infested waters in new york um and paul wanted me to come out and say something along the lines of uh all the all of jerry's kids are picking their pencils up in their mouths and scribbling their notes to you you know voicing their support something i said paul i can't say that that's that's pretty tasteless that's pretty over the top you know and he said oh you gotta say it to are scared, you know in the overall scheme of things, it's what put into perspective to me that heels are to be hated and despised. It's not meant to be to, to go out there and be the cool heel like we see so often today. It's to go out there and be the guy that everybody would shoot, throw a rock on your head, kick you in the balls, run you over with their car if they got the chance. Uh, and you know, so that really started getting me geared in towards that way of thinking, you know, and, and, uh, Uh, And there were tons of those. There was one night we were outside of a hospital doing a very similar type of promo, and uh, I was in a wheelchair mimicking, you know, making fun of Gary Wolf. You know, really tasteless stuff. That stuff that was so far beyond the boundary uh, for the average man or woman to watch and hear. Uh, That you know, I don't know anybody that could watch it, my mother included, that could watch it and say, "I'm rooting for the franchise. You know, (laughs) I want to see him win." And uh, for Franny's role, to see her, you know, you know, playing along with that after basically being the setup to the entire, uh, to the entire thing, uh, you know, as beautiful as a woman as she is, it wasn't the kind of thing you looked at and said, "Well, she's beautiful, so I think she's cool." I think, you know, there were still that element of the, you know, the guys in the ECW ring that loved Francine, but I think that. Most of the people that watching it were looking and thinking, this is a diabolical bitch, you know, and, and those are the elements that went into to making that. I, I think, again, it's, you know, in this politically correct world, uh, it's the type of thing that I think the writers in the WWE and, and TNA and Ring of Honor and New Japan and all the rest of the places shy away from because nobody wants to look to be insensitive today. Uh I don't know about you, but I walk up and down the street, I see a bunch of insensitive assholes every day I walk up and down the street. Uh, <laughs> that's the real world out there. Uh, you know. And so when you try to play this reflective, we're going to create this kumbaya world where all is good and we all sit and sing around the campfire at night. It doesn't exist. That's called, like my old professor Bethany should say, that's pie in the sky idealism. It doesn't exist. And if that's the way you're intending the world to go, whether it be the world of professional wrestling or the world in general outside your front door. It doesn't operate that way. So you can either go in with eyes wide open or you can go in with eyes wide shut. And me, I, I tend to want to engage the world with my eyes wide open.
2: Such a great old school heel, really generating heel heat, not caring about getting cheered, not caring about selling merchandise. Not caring about Gary Wolf's feelings. You know, it, it just, it's just such a cool look back at it. And just the franchise character in ECW was so perfect. And to me, I always liked the heels. So I was always rooting for the franchise. And I was like, man, these ECW guys, they can't work or they can't wrestle. Like, Shane, you know, teach them a lesson. Yeah, break the guys' So I was always a big uh, franchise <laughs> supporter because I always liked the heels. I just liked every aspect the fact that, you know, you could get the crowd to riot. You could get them to hate you, and then you know. Then at the end of the day, you leave with the hot girl. It was it was the perfect scenario. And and what bigger heat than
1: that, right? You know, here is this guy that's run his mouth said all these tasteless things, bragged his ass off. He won, and he's leaving with the pretty chick. It, it's like salt in the wound, you know. It was, and, and and I think that was, you know, Paul did a lot of things fantastically in ECW did some things not so great but I, in in my estimation this sounds sort of self-serving because I was in that position but looking back as a fan uh somebody that grew up as one of the heel fans <clears throat> that would have lured me in as, as a wrestling mark that's the kind of stuff that would have sucked me right in uh you know here's you know, it's, and if you look at it, it's really simple to see. It's the time that Paul Heyman and I were growing up. <clears throat> there used to be an unwritten rule. I don't know if it was written or unwritten rule in Hollywood that the bad guy couldn't get away with it. So if you go back and look at all the old movies in the 60s and 70s, by the end of the movie, <clears throat> excuse me, the heel always got his comeuppance or her comeuppance. There was always a payback by the end of the movie. And suddenly, here we are in the early 90s, and here's this irredeemable piece of shit, big mouth, braggadocious asshole of a character. And not only is he winning, but he's winning and getting away with the chick and riding off into the sunset. It, it's, it was everything anti-Hollywood, uh, everything anti-pop uh, uh, culture. It was, it was against all of that. And you know, Paul has often said, and and I've heard him say it. And I, I knew he was doing it at the time. Uh, what made ECW ECW that was that with all the barbed wire, with all the jumping and diving and crazy matches and blood and guts, at the heart of the storm was a professional wrestler that was walking out with the gold. And so, you know, for all the naysayers that, and and ECW had many critics at that time, contrary to the popular belief today that we were all 10 feet tall and all had five-star matches. We had a lot of critics at the time, uh, but a lot of those criticisms were based around things that you would see come later in the industry and in WCW and WWF, where hardcore wrestling became a guy coming to, to the wrestling room with a can of garbage and each other hitting each other with the garbage for 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 10 minutes. Uh, if you go back and watch ECW in retrospect, and you do it with a, uh, a blank slate at the heart of it. If you watch it from episode one, somebody today on Twitter mentioned how they started over the weekend. At the beginning, was going through. Uh, if you start at the beginning of, of Paul's tenure in ECW, and you have the belt throw down and the expansive growth from there, at the heart of it. It wasn't about hitting each other with garbage. It wasn't about blood and guts. It wasn't any of that. At, at the heart of it was some incredible wrestling storylines. And executing those storylines was an incredible roster of talent. Uh, guys, that you know, I got to do a little bit of a Twitter battle with people a couple of weeks ago whenever I talked about <clears throat> my views on the ECW locker room. And I don't think it's happenstance. That how many out of that locker room from Paul's tenure forward became fairly big names in the business. Uh, not happens fans, you know. Paul had located those those talents, and or those talents had contacted him, and he was smart enough to bring them in and book them. Uh, but Paul had a pretty impressive roster of talent to execute those incredible storylines that he was coming up with.
2: Now, there is a, a a book coming out. It's The Secrets of Monday Nitro and, and what this has to do with you in particular and what you just said about Hardcore is they posted on Twitter that they found a WCW live interview from 2000 with you and you had said Hardcore had become cliche and WCW and even the WWF were kind of doing a, a poor attempt at copying ECW but making its own division and kind of making it somewhat corny yeah. and and this and that. Do you remember that interview at all? How are you saying it was so cliche at the, at the time? I, I don't remember
1: specifically, but the words certainly sound familiar. Uh, you know, the uh, pretty much what I just talked about. You now here comes the hardcore wrestler. And he's got a garbage can full of junk with him or a, a, a grocery cart full of junk. And, you know, the belt was broken into pieces and, you know, stupid shit like that, that, that the big companies took and perverted an idea that was pure. It was pristine. Uh, it was fresh and new and completely perverted it. Now, to throw cast aspersion on ourselves, we became cliches of ourselves. Uh, towards the end of the ECW, every match was going to the ring and using 50 chairs and getting on the microphone and throwing 50 F bombs around and breaking 26 tables and, you know, using whatever tools they could get their hands on at ringside or they took with them. And everybody was getting color. And, and so it became a, a grotesquery of itself. You know, Bill Watts and any great promoter and booker will ever tell you, the show has to build. The show has to start on step one, build to step two, build, 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 build until you blow it to the roof at the end. Uh, nobody climbs a set of stairs by going to step one and then walking uh, horizontally for 20, you know, 20 steps. Uh, It builds, it builds, it builds, it builds. To do that, you have to leave something else to the matches after you. And, you know, as me, it was one of the original guys that go out and throw the F-bomb around. You know, by the time I got out there at midnight on an ECW show, uh, you know, you'd already heard the F-bomb 123 times by the time I got out there. And so all of it became watered down. And there was an experiment we did, it was an experiment, I guess, in my mind, in Scranton, uh, Raven was wrestling Terry Funk. And, you know, I knew out of respect for them working on top for the world title, let's leave something for them at the end of the show so they can blow the lid off the Scranton CYO and cap this show off right. And so I, I pulled Paul aside and I implored him, you have to, I can't say it, you have to say it. You're the boss. Tell everybody to stay off the microphone if they're not specifically told. Tell everybody that if they break a table before, if they're not specifically told, they're fired. If everybody, anybody uses a table or a kendo, stick, whatever, the, whatever the things were at that time that were being used. And Paul did it reluctantly, but he did it. And Terry Funk and Raven went out that night. And as soon as they touched the table the first time, you could feel it. They, they, the fans had already gotten a great show. And when Terry Funk and Raven brought that, that table into the ring for the very first time, you could feel the energy in the room, jump up 10 decibels. And then they teased it it and didn't use it and didn't use it and didn't use it and didn't use it. And then finally Funk puts Raven through that table and the place, the lid exploded off the place exactly what I knew it would do. And, uh, you know, that, that's what became of hardcore, you know, after a while in ECW, even it became a grotesquery of itself. And then the big companies got their corporate fingers on it and saw it. Uh, Vincent Mann, by the way, had never once to this day ever used the letters ECW with me. Anytime he'd ever spoken to me about it, it always was, Hey, when you were in the bingo hall company, when you were in the small pond, when you were in the blood and guts company, euphemisms like that, never ECW showed me genuinely what he really thought of the company. You know, he thought, and and when I was up there in in 96, he and Jim Ross and multiple others would constantly ask me questions. You know, why why did Paul do this? And why did Paul do that? What was in his thinking when he booked this or that? They were always picking my brain about ECW, but Vince would never say, I remember it became like a running joke in my own head. Like, when's he ever going to use letters ECW with me? and you know because even then ECW was a fairly big thing you know even though it had failed ultimately or uh, was you know would ultimately at that point uh, when i was there in 96 you could tell that they were enamored with it that there was something in their mind that was pulling them to it and what it was they're watching the show and the shows were damn interesting they were damn entertaining to watch uh but Vince would never once bring it in himself to say when you were in extreme championship wrestling or ECW, it was always the bingo hall company, the minor league, the small pond, blood and guts company, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, to me, that stuck out at me, that it showed me that it was really gnawing at him, you know, that he couldn't quite figure it out. Uh, They were, he and Jim Ross were both amazed at how Paul was able to get everybody to work that hard. Uh, You know, just really strange off the wall questions and, uh, you know, that that will always stick out in my mind. But it, 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 echoing back to the, the promo that you mentioned, I don't specifically remember that promo, but it, those are certainly my words. Uh, you know, I, that was my general feeling at the time, was this is not what we did, guys. You know, I, I didn't go to the ring hauling a garbage can full of junk behind me. I would walk to the ring with Francine and give her her proper due and get, you know, to, to take the clock walk in the center ring and... You know, and, and get my heat. Uh, when I wrestled guys like Taz, he didn't bring a can of garbage with him. Al Snow didn't bring a can of garbage with him. Bam, Bam, Bigelow didn't need to bring a can of garbage with him. Uh, we just went out and tore the house down the old-fashioned way. Uh, you know, it, but that's what it had become of it. And and still to this day, when you occasionally see something hardcore, that's what you see, right? <laughs> you know, people hit each other with stop signs and garbage cans and. And stuff like that not that we didn't do those at that time those types of things at that time we did but they were speckled throughout the show and it wasn't every show or or when you did see it with frequency it was with certain wrestlers or certain teams and it was then left localized like bill watts used to say at thanksgiving dinner nobody wants the big pile of turkey they want a little bit of everything and in the ecw show you get a little bit of everything including the cat fights and you know the garbage cans and the great wrestling matches. There was there was literally all of it on those shows.
2: Now, if I can move along to the news and the big wrestling news over the last couple of days has been WWE's TV deal that will start in October 2019 with Fox. Heading uh, you know heading off in, into Fox is a SmackDown, and I guess it's going to be moving to Friday nights. They haven't said it's going to be live yet, but the rumor is it's going to be now live friday nights so that's smackdown and it'll be on fox and that's primetime fox which is pretty amazing but that's not only the amazing part the amazing part is that the deal is for 1 billion dollars so yeah. you have declining ratings raw is at you know all-time low smackdown's at an all-time low yet fox will step in and offer three times the amount of money that USA offered for just SmackDown. They're going to give them one billion dollars over the next five years, and it's pretty insane that not only would you outbid, you know, NBC Universal, you'd outbid them by that much, you know, almost, almost laughable amount, one billion. But look, Vince did it again. What a smart businessman. Well, it's uh, this is the thing that
1: you know you, you keep on going to – Take keep taking your hat off to Vince for, you know. Everybody's listening to this podcast from the beginning those 48 episodes. I've I've shown my disdain and and, and lessened respect for Vince's man as a human being, as a businessman. You know, you've got. You know, I'm sure Princeton, uh, Oxford, and Harvard are teaching colleges about uh, classes about this. Um, that he's been able to turn this, like you mentioned, uh, and not just. Slightly declining ratings and, and house revenues, greatly declining revenues uh, and, and TV ratings. Uh, the TV ratings we've talked about ad nauseum on this program, down 90, 95 percent from 20, 25 years ago. Uh, you know, I've often heard Vince's counter commentary saying, well, you know, to be fair, across the board, ratings are down. That's true. And he often quotes the right number, which is 10 percent. So in general, programs are down about 10%. Professional wrestling is down 90 to 95%, hardly a fair comparison. Uh, House show attendance is down from nearly $12,000 per event to well under $6,000 and dropping fast. Uh, Per capita merchandise sales have fallen from around $37 a head to less than $11 per head. So on every front, that company is heading south. And somehow, uh, what, what I think this speaks of with the Fox deal, and not just the Fox deal, but the fact that lost in, in, in the fervor over the Fox announcement was that MD Universal, in fact, did resign for in the middle of May to renew Raw at triple what they're currently earning. Uh, astounding on every level. So he's been making triple time the amount from Raw uh and making over the billion dollars over five years they had 1.1 billion over five years with uh smackdown Uh, astounding from a business perspective that he's been able to do that but i think here's what's more at work when i was a kid we had mbc abc cbs that was it we had three networks and you know you had several affiliates like in, in pittsburgh we had i think three cbs affiliates in the pittsburgh ohio region we had couple ABC affiliates, you know, but, but in general, you had the three networks, then Fox came along and then you had the WB and the CW and try to break into it. I don't know how many there are now, but I've often heard the number 500 thrown around and growing every day. Uh, you know, every time I hear about TNA, it's on some different network that I've never heard of. Uh, you <laughs> know, so you, you have this ever expanding litany of, of networks out there. The, you know, we see Hulu, Redbox, Netflix, Google. Uh, we have all these different platforms getting into live events and, and uh, uh, original content, you know. And, and so you can see that the sweet spot that we that, that those of us in the entertainment industry have always known for the last 10 years, the sweet spot was original content. You know, if JP or Chad want to turn on their, their, their TV or their computer. They don't want to go to or their phone. They don't a tab on their phone. They don't want to go to and watch the same thing they just saw last night on ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. They want to see something new, and so original content is held in high regard. But the the the, the platinum sweet spot of original content is original live content. And uh, remember the last time that Vince renegotiated, NASCAR had gotten. 1.1 billion or 1.6 billion i think it was, it was over a billion dollars for a five or ten year contract and vince had gone for the same and went down in flames his thought dropped 40 percent because he had held out that he was going to get that and didn't uh but now here he is back you know how you know how the tables turn you know so here he is as the last man standing right now in professional wrestling and has you know a product that can still garner a fairly strong decent rating by today's standards. and he's able to turn that into the tune of one point one billion from Fox and triple the amount for NBC Universal. What I'm not aware of is how much the original contract with NBC Universal is worth. but it's going to be a a pretty penny. And you know so you can see why the stock, Vince's stock had jumped, approaching sixty dollars, uh from the low 40s just a few weeks ago by uh, an astounding jump and, and that's the part that's the businessman in me that is impressed with what vincent man is doing in light of all the the, the, the negative things I, I know how to reverse those trends uh what i don't know is how vincent man has been able to turn this into the into, the, into the, the you know the goose lane the golden egg, so to speak with uh with the numbers that he's exhibiting because if you look at his books Across the board, you can see it down everywhere. And yet, we see these numbers that we've seen come out last week. I, I, I think Vince is a really lucky recipient of the fact that the industry has expanded the way it has the number of networks and outlets, the fact that so many people are getting their content through tablets and computers and, and streaming that, uh, you know, television. Isn't you know when I was growing up, television was what you had. It was the uh, the the genre. Now there's all these other uh, multiple applications to get your entertainment from, and the fact that there are so many other networks now, even just television, that Vince has uniquely positioned himself to be able to capitalize on that. Kudos to him. But uh, the question I would have is when and if, because I don't think it's just uh, it's not a question of. So much if somebody's going to get into it when there's this kind of money made how many people right now at different networks do you think are looking at that 1.1 billion dollars and thinking shit that's what he got for that crappy show uh what could we get if we had a good show on and you know wheels are turning right now you look and you see with the all-in show that, that the kids have done astoundingly sold out in 20 something minutes uh, and now rumors inside, I don't know if it's leaked out yet, but that there's gonna be a follow up show to be announced very shortly. uh lost in that is that uh uh, uh help me out the the, uh, the kid that just wrestled Jericho in Japan uh get a brain fart.
2: Uh, Omega
1: I'm um, Omega um that he that's uh, where I can't get names of anymore, but that he has a show going on in Florida. Uh, In an eight nine thousand seat venue that's also sold out, Uh, you know clearly professional wrestling has not lost its its fervor it's it's vim and vigor, it's still there. Uh, With the type of numbers that we're seeing thrown around now, I've got to believe that there are others licking their chops, looking uh, at how to get in, when to get in, where to get in, and uh, you know the question you have to ask yourself is would Vince have been able to garner these kind of numbers? Had there been a, say, WCW in the mix right now or another company that was close to parity with WWE, um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, what we do know is that, unfortunately, right now, there isn't another company uh, that's able to stand parity to WWE. And so Vince McMahon has turned it in to the egg, that the, the golden egg that the goose has laid. And uh, kudos to him for doing it. It's astounding. Like I said in light of all the ever-decreasing numbers on all fronts
2: of the WWE. Yeah, it feels like it was a couple years ago, and they were negotiating with USA, and USA barely gave them maybe $200 for five years, or whatever the exact deal was. You know, fast forward five years later, and Fox has given them $1.1 for SmackDown, their B-show. Not to say they don't put energy into it, but let's just say they don't focus as much as they focus on Raw, so it's pretty amazing. It's pretty astounding. I don't know. What it, has what Vince saying to these guys in this meeting? What is he promising them that uh, they're going to give him a billion dollars for something that the audience has been progressively going down, down, down for years and is basically just the hardcore fans are left? Well,
1: my thought is I, I've not spoken to anybody, but I, I know that morale has been down greatly uh, in the WWE dressing room lately. So I'm sure that this has given him something to go back in there and crow about. Now, he's got to be telling them in some fashion or another, this is going to equal out to X amount of dollars more for you. Uh, if not mentioning a specific dollar amount, that it's going to, it's got to equal out to more money. And if it doesn't equal out to more money to the wrestlers, you'll have a mutiny on your hands. Uh but that would be my guess as to what he's saying. But I'm going I'm to throw a big curveball in here. The whispers that we, I've been hearing from multiple sources on the inside. Uh, the announcement of the XFL uh, for Vincent Mann. Any of us that watched the 30 for 30 and heard the comments by, uh, uh, what's the gentleman's name that was his partner? Um, Ebersole. Dick Eversole saying that this, this goes something along the lines of this is got to be the biggest failure of your resume or something along those lines. Uh, then the announcement that Deborah saw someone jumping in and doing a spring football league the year before Vince, which I don't think at all is coincidental. Remember the AFL and the NFL uh, and then the eventual merger. Uh, but clearly Vince McMahon has turned his attention to the XFL. Uh, it, it seems to me from what I'm watching for the last decade or better that Vince hasn't really given much of a shit about wrestling to begin with or sports entertainment, if you will, that, uh, somebody said to me, asking me a rhetorical question, name something else that Rupert Murdoch has invested a billion dollars in that he didn't have a piece of. And you start scratching your head and thinking, mm, pretty hard to think of anything off the top of my head. Uh, is this the possibility? You know, last week and the week before, there were several uh, public uh, stories about the Disney buying Fox. Then came out that Comcast was upping the bid for Fox, and Fox getting this. Is this to be a crown jewel in Fox to sweeten the deal even more with Comcast or Disney or some third entity that we don't know of yet? Uh, But the rumor on the inside is that the WWE is on the verge of being sold. Now, we'll see how this plays out. But the one thing that I have to do my follow-up homework on, after I was asked the question about Rupert Murdoch, uh, spending that kind of money as he's getting ready to sell off large pieces of his empire to Comcast, Disney, or some third or fourth entity that's probably sitting out there, uh, I don't know of anything else that he's invested this much money in uh, to just have the television uh, rights to. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's food for thought. Uh, but piecing the pieces together as I'm looking at them and knowing the industry like I know it. Uh, the one thing I am certain of, Vince McMahon will not bequeath the WWE to Stephanie and Shane uh, or their kids. Uh like he bought it from his dad, he'll make them buy it from him in some respect. Or, you know, when you see the run-up of the stock, you know, when you, when you sell your car, you don't take it out 4 wheel in the day before somebody comes to look at it. You spit shine it, you get the new car smell, spray it and spray it inside. Uh, you, you armor all the tires and all the, the, you know, the rubber and, and plastic and vinyl. You want that thing looking showroom news so when that person comes to look at it, you get the to top dollar out of it. Uh, it looks to me like Vince McMahon is a bit spit-shining the WWE recently, and as that stock price increases, you know we're hearing about now a market cap value of around four billion, which is shocking to me. Uh, will he offload it? You know, for we, we saw the UFC uh, with a far lesser of a uh, track record than the WWE. So for what, 4.2 billion a year or two ago, will we see something similar happen with the WWE? Crazy as it sounds, and somebody listening to this right now is thinking, Shane's full of shit. Let's watch and see what time tells us. But something clearly is going on. The the the, the rapid rise in the stock, uh, the positioning the way they are of the company, the the war between Comcast and, and Disney. Uh, and like I said, I'm sure there must be a third or four entity involved there. Uh there's clearly something going on that's way beyond just Fox looking to televise uh WWE's content. That's my belief.
0: Yeah, that's a great uh that's a great little uh, not a conspiracy theory, but that's a great little uh food for thought because it's a lot of a lot of oddities that are are adding up. But one of the things I put on our run sheet here is it's kind of interesting. That you look at the thirty-year cycle of professional wrestling on mainstream and and network television, and it seems like we're entering now that you know that thirtieth uh, year cycle again is. We had the original Dumont television network broadcasting from the late '40s to the '50s, and then obviously in the '80s with Saturday Night's Main Event and NBC, and now with WWE back in here with Fox. It, it's kind of weird the trend of of thirty years or so. You know, it's kind of funny where we'll be in 30 years from this. And to not have a McMahon in control or owning uh, a property like WWE, that's, um, I don't know, it's kind of hard to believe. I know it's possible now in this day and age with these mergers, but it's, uh, I don't know, looking at these 30-year cycles of of network television and pro wrestling, it's hard to believe that uh, the McMahons wouldn't be a part of it down the road.
1: Yeah, it really is hard to imagine. I I would think that if... Uh, you know, a, a, a Spike or a Disney or Comcast or, again, anybody else would buy it, that they would clearly want, quote-unquote, a McMahon to be involved in somewhere or other because everybody knows if dad knows something, Junior must certainly know it or or, or, or daughter. Uh, and I don't think you'll see the the, uh, the eraser the eraser of the McMahon name from the sports entertainment industry. But it seems to me that clearly you know, we've talked about these ebbs and flows before in wrestling, the ups and downs. Uh, those have always been present in professional wrestling. But for the last several decades, they've been widely erratic. You know, Extreme, extreme highs and devastatingly valley lows. Uh, much wider swings than, than was typically seen in wrestling in, in, in decades leading up to that, that, that big jump of WWF. Uh, but Clearly, there's something going on. You know, the the industry's in some kind of a transformative mode right now, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. You know, look, if if Vincent Man sold tomorrow, my dislike personally for him aside, nobody, me included, can argue the success of his impact on the on the professional wrestling industry. It's been astounding, and you know, he took. I remember going to the Pittsburgh Civic Arena when I was a kid, and you know. It's still the the quintessential wrestling vision in my mind of a darkened arena with the lights over the ring and big muscular guys in the ring wrestling as smoke swirled up into the lights. You know, guys smoking their cigars and cigarettes and pipes and things. Uh, You know, Vince had taken it from that to suddenly being doctors and lawyers and teachers and professionals being in the audience with their kids. And, you know, there's something to be said for that from a business level. There's also some things that can be said counter to it, that it, uh, how it's damaged wrestling or changed wrestling, ruined wrestling to the purists. But, uh, you know, clearly Vince took the wrestling industry from something it had never been to something it always had wanted to be. And, you know, a mainstream form of entertainment. Uh, you know, so you, Vince's kudos can never be lessened on the industry. You know, just as a side note, as I say those things, I, I have to also counter that with, for somebody that did those incredible things in the wrestling industry, he could have also, also very easily transformed the industry and the way that the workers in that industry, you know, we hear now, you know, how you know, people wanting minimum wage should demand more and, and, you know, workers' rights. And the one thing that Vince McMahon did nothing for was workers' rights in professional wrestling. Professional wrestlers today are still being treated by and large the same way they were in the nineteen forties and fifties. And you know, for that I would say shame on Vince. So you know with everything a yin and the yang. Uh, but you know Vince clearly has had an incredible impact on professional wrestling. And you know whether he sells it now or a year from now or never does it bequeaths it to his kids is to prove me wrong, uh, which I highly doubt. Uh, <laughs> his impact on the industry can't be understated.
0: Now, what would you do if uh, one of these conglomerates that purchases, hypothetically, the WWE forgoes Vince, uh, Vince, Shane, Stephanie, and even Linda? You know, obviously working for uh, President Trump. And what if they dug up Vince's little-known brother, Roderick McMahon, to run the uh, the <laughs> WWE? What would you do with that, Shane? <laughs>
1: It, 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 is he still alive? I'm curious. I, you know, he, he, <coughs> he caught me so off guard with that. You know, I, when I first heard of Roger a few years ago, you know, I found that Kevin Sullivan was telling me that, and I thought, oh, he's got to be full of shit. I've, I've been in this business how long? Thirty something years. I'd never heard that. And when I went to Dominic and asked him, he said, "Oh yeah, you mean Roger? Like, <laughs> like it was a well-known fact or something?" And uh. I was floored by that. So I, I don't know if Roderick is still alive. I, I My understanding was that he was the older brother, uh, that he was older than Vince. So, But I've, the fact that you haven't heard his name almost at all, uh, I'd be surprised if he's still alive. And if he is, you know, where he is and what he's doing. But I haven't heard anything about Roderick outside, like, like I said, of being told by Kevin Sullivan and then verified by Dominic. I've never heard his name brought up in another conversation until this podcast tonight, so <laughs> it's pretty surprising.
0: The, uh, the only other mention uh, of Roderick McMahon, and I believe he is still alive, was during the storyline where Vince McMahon uh, exploded in his limousine and they were going to hold the funeral for Mr. McMahon the following week, which obviously in wrestling history was the week of the Benoit murders. Uh, that was supposedly going to be Roderick McMahon's on-screen debut, was a part of the uh, the funeral procession that would have taken place on Monday Night Raw, and he would have been a part of that ensemble. So we were very close to seeing the elusive Roderick McMahon on television, and I'm shocked that they never found another way to either even have him be as a character, maybe not the actual Roderick McMahon, but have another brother, you know, kind of thrown into the, uh, the McMahon family mix. I'm shocked sure. they never did that.
1: Well, because it's like, as much of an OMG moment as it was to me, as somebody in in the industry, you can imagine to the fans, you know, that, that, you know, as Vincent set himself up as this dastardly heel character, and suddenly there's a counterbalance to him, that would have been an incredible way to go. But, you know, who knows why I would have my thoughts as to why he didn't go that direction. But, uh, 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 yeah it's, it's shocking that so little is known about Roderick in the over and under as much as the world knows about Vincent Mann and his family that somehow Roderick has flown under that radar and uh astoundingly yeah, you know, I, I I still can't believe it and it's just in this day and age with TMZ and everything else digging up all this dirt on everybody uh, uh I know you took a you know, it took a a girl three years older than you to the prom ninety six years ago. That kind of stupid shit. <laughs> uh, I, I'm surprised that kind of thing hasn't it, hasn't it spilled out somewhere along the line.
0: I'm gonna say it's probably because in a ca- casual conversation with Vince, uh, Roderick told um, told Mr. McMahon there uh, whatever happened to that that Dean Douglas guy? He was my favorite back in ninety uh, five. <laughs> that probably caused the rift.
1: That's that's. Well, that if that's really happened, that's what happened. He, he's buried out in the desert somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Roderick's long gone. Well,
0: bef- before we turn it over to John for a little ass franchise anything, I want to touch on this because uh, we just passed a, a very unfortunate anniversary here in, in the last week, and that was the un the unbelievable uh, near twentieth anniversary of the death of Owen Hart. And uh, it was yeah. May, May 23rd, 1999, passing away at the age of 34 years old. Unfriggin' wow. believable that it's been as long as it has been uh, since he passed away. But Shane, I mean, obviously it was news that rocked the wrestling industry forever. Um, the fact that there was uh, a death, not only on a live pay-per-view, not only at a live event, but the, the fact that it was so brutal and how Owen yeah. passed away, I mean, still feeling the effects to this day. Um, you know, you were a part of the, you, were, you attended the funeral, which I want to touch on in a minute, but looking back since 1999, the death of Owen Hart, you told us off the air, you can't believe it, it's been that long, it only feels like a few years. You know, kind of take us yeah. back to that point in time where, you know, that, his passing just took everybody by surprise. It was so brutally uh, shocking at that point.
1: Yeah, that's the best way to put it, brutally shocking. I I was at home, obviously not watching the pay-per-view. And uh, uh, the manager, merchandise manager for ECW, Damian Farron, who passed away uh, two Julys ago, this July, uh, called me and said, are you watching this? And I said, no. He said, well, they're WWE, WWF or WWE, whatever they were called at that time. uh, He said, they're doing something really tasteless. They're saying that Owen Hart died. And I said, Why they what are you talking about? He said, Yeah, they're saying that his stunt went bad and he fell to his death. And I got on the computer and I remember this is in the early days of the computer, so there wasn't like you know all the blog sites and everything you have today, but you know, there were still enough sites that you could get information on. And you started seeing these quick comments coming in. And at first it felt like a really tasteless, bad WWE style storyline. And but within a few minutes, you begin to realize there's something more on like the like the frenzied back and forth of things that people were commenting. And I remember getting this nauseatingly sick feeling in my stomach. Like, I hope to God this is a bad WWE storyline. And of, of course, it turned out to be that it wasn't. And, you know, within a matter of days, we were all making plans to get up to Calgary to uh, to attend his funeral. What I, Before I get into the dour side of it, I, I'd rather talk. For a split second, if I could about Owen, Owen, uh, he was a great guy, uh, funny as hell. Uh, always like like the, like a gremlin, you know. When you think of a gremlin, that that would be Owen to a T. Um, you know, I, I remember one time he we went to the ring with uh, with a singles match with Davy Boy Smith, uh, who of course was related to his sister, married him, his brother-in-law, and he took a flying mare, Davy Boy, and front chin locks him. And as soon as he chin locks him, you see Owen wipe his hands across Davy's mouth. And, you know, from the back, from where we are, I can't see what he's doing, but I can, I can see Davy like, smacking his hands at his face. And as soon as he does, he wipes his hand across his mouth again and again and again. And as keeps doing, I'm going, what the hell is he doing? And he really comes back, and he's cussing, and he's screaming and throwing things. And But he's got a beard of, like, all kind of shit on his face. <laughs> what the hell? up there and here he had coffee grounds and ground up bananas and god knows what else in his tights and the thing that's always astounded me is as many matches I've had is like I would have no idea where I would hide all that shit in my tights like (laughs) where would I hide coffee grounds and ground up bananas and you know three or four other things and that was Owen but he, he was always up to something you know like you know something nefarious, something you know skullduggery of some sort, but you know never vicious or mean type of that that I ever saw you know they're just always having fun, and that's the way he kept himself entertained on the road you know if you uh you've ever you know heard the stories be on the road, the road can get long and hard, and if you don't entertain yourself somehow, it can you know some guys crack, some guys you know do do drugs or do a lot of drinking to to numb themselves to it. I think oh, and by and large humoring himself as a way of doing it. Another time we were in Eastern Germany and he and I and four or five or six guys walked across this great big parking lot to a tanning uh, salon that they had, uh, you know, a couple hundred yards away. And when we came out, the guy told me, he said, uh, Owen left. He said he left a few minutes ago. So I come walking out, and as I'm walking, through, you can see the hotel. It's like across this big parking area, and I see Owen you know, about a hundred yards ahead of me, and a throng of forty, fifty, sixty people around them. And all of a sudden, those forty, fifty, sixty people come running back to me, and I see Owen waving as he's running away. You know, what the fuck did he do now? <laughs> Here he told all of them that I was Brett coming out of the <laughs> coming out of the tanning salon, <laughs> and. So they're all come running back. You can imagine their disdain when they realize it wasn't Bret Hart coming out of there. But that was Owen. He was always up to some kind of skullduggery like that. He was such a down to earth, funny human being, you know. And uh, I remember thinking, like, immediately upon thinking that, hearing uh, of his tragic passing, uh, my first initial thought was and has always remained I can't believe somebody died from professional wrestling. And since then, and as I've heard the Mia culpa's from the WWE and from Vince McMahon saying, you know, uh, he would have wanted the show to go on and things like that. You know, th- those are comments that we can all try to ascribe to somebody as much as we want. Uh, here's what I can tell you with absolute certainty, because any of those other comments that we try to ascribe to somebody are just hearsay and, 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 and conjecture. But the one thing I can tell you with absolute 1,000% certainty is that Owen Hart would have wanted his children's father to come home that week. He would have wanted his wife's husband to come home that week. And instead, within a matter of days, wrestlers across the industry, from all the companies, WCW, WWF, ECW, all those different companies, are making travel arrangements to go to Calgary to attend Owen Hart's funeral, Uh, which, again, in my book, should never happen and the genre of professional wrestling.
0: And, and the picture that I was just referencing, um, it's available on Google. I mean, it surfaced literally, I remember, right after the, the funeral had taken place. And, you know, you're dead set in the in the middle of this picture, and it's you and Brett and Terry Funk and, and Nancy Benoit and Chris Benoit and uh, Brian Blair, Hulk Hogan, the entire Hart yeah. family, the Bulldog... Um, And and Dory Funk, I mean, it's an amazing collection of talent that was there. But to celebrate the life of a friend and a colleague and a a brother and a father. And and I can't imagine what the emotion was like at the funeral. I'm not going to ask what was the emotion like at the funeral because it's very clear. But was it surreal to be there in that moment? Um, And especially, like you said, somebody dying from wrestling uh, with such ties, the way the Hart family is tied to wrestling as it is. You know, is that yeah. something in itself that was just hard to, to swallow?
1: Well, the, the the most gut-wrenching part for me was was meeting Helen and Stu. Uh, I had met Stu, obviously, before that, but, you know, just to say hello, that kind of thing. But uh, you know, losing a child is, is, is a pain that I never want to experience, and I don't think anybody, I know nobody wants to. Uh, and I think at this stage of their lives, uh, the two of them clearly— you know, had, uh, you could just see like them empty with it as the entire family was. And the the feeling that was there that day, that, that picture, by the way, was taken right uh, to the left of the, uh, the, the stew or the heart compound, you know, it was a big, they had a big open area there and had set up a banquet and everything. But uh, it was oddly strange and surreal in the sense that you know, we were all sitting around and celebrating and laughing about Owen and telling Owen stories, but you're doing it at the same time that you've just watched the the absolutely unnecessary death of such a young and vibrant and incredible talent. Uh, it, it, was, it was a very strange thing uh, to say the least. And I think making it doubly odd was the fact that there were all of these multiple promotions with uh, athletes and talent present, you know, where you rarely if ever saw uh, all those promotions converge in one place. And, you know, that just added an element of of, uh, oddity to the whole thing, you know, that it it just felt surreal on so many different levels. Uh, Going to the funeral home was even stranger because they had the entire downtown Calgary area cordoned off and you had to have passes to get through in certain places and you know it's you could tell that Calgary was outpouring their love to the Hart family but it felt it had a circus feel to it if you know what I mean uh you know you're walking in to to watch one of your friends uh, uh be eulogized and again for a completely unnecessary passing and there's just this immense outpouring uh it, it just it was very very strange on so many levels but that said uh there was a sort of hope to the whole thing you know the, the I remember the refs talking about the hope that this would bring change to the industry uh that it would shine light on it and force change in the industry and uh You know, I'll let history be the judge of whether it did that or not. Uh, I have my own personal opinion, but, uh, you know, I I, I think that, you know, the people that are watching this a lot longer and and for a lot more further into the future than I will be, will be the judge of that. But I personally don't believe that it brought much change at all to the plight of professional wrestlers and and, and what they endure on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, it was uh, unfortunately, you know, in the the midst of the Attitude Era, where shocking TV was the norm, and like you said, you know, everybody thought it might have been an angle at first, and it wasn't that far fetched to think it could have been, based off of uh, even you know Brian Pillman's death being in the middle of an angle where you know uh, something extreme happening in that angle wasn't surprising. So when Brian Pillman passed away. You know, at first, everybody had to question the legitimacy of it, and obviously it was very real. But, you know, just to to shed a little bit of light on the career of Owen Hart, not obviously that his kids lost a father, his wife lost her husband, but just from the – we'll take it back to the wrestling perspective. Put your booking hat on if you can here, Shane. If you had Owen Hart past 1999, and Owen Hart goes on to have a long and fruitful career – in the wrestling business. Where did you see his trajectory possibly going? Because obviously the in-ring skill was there. The personality was there. The the promos were there. Where would you see Owen Hart kind of falling into the next 10 years or so in the wrestling business?
1: Well, I, I, and it sounds like a cliche, but truly for a guy like Owen, the sky was the limit. And I'll explain why. Uh, he had everything that Brett had, uh, and, then he had, I would say, more personality than Brett. You know, Brett's more of a wry, uh, even keeled type of a personality. Owen had these, these, you know, almost, I don't want to say manic can make it sound like he had some kind of a mental illness or something, but you know, he had these these swings of like where he'd be Owen oh, Hart, the professional, and then two minutes later, he'd be crying tears, laughing so hard because of something he said or did. Uh, and I think had he been able to move his career beyond that, and then demonstrated that character that was truly him—the the real Owen Hart—in front of those cameras, which is where the industry went, you know, in, in, in that, after that time frame, uh, with you know this whole approach to shooting on things and uh, reality TV, etc. Had had Owen been able to uncork that the real Owen Hart on camera? I think the stratosphere would have been his limit, you know, as high as he wanted to go. uh, He was great. He had all the in-ring skill uh, and by no means trying to take anything away from Brett. I think he had everything that Brett had in the ring uh, and then a little bit more in the personality department. You know, he really was a genuinely funny and compelling guy to watch. You know, when he was up to something, you had see a little grin on his face. Every in the dressing room kept their eyes on him. And in my experience, when you can compel the dressing room of guys in this industry that strongly that you can pretty much compel the audience. Uh, so I, I think, you know, Owen Hart, had he not met his untimely end uh, doing a wrestling stunt, uh, that, you know, he would have been and, and may still have continued to be. Even to this day, you know, a top star in the industry. Uh, you know, he, he came from that. That was his lineage. It was in his genes. Uh So I, I think it was a passing of a real talent in, in the wrestling business when Owen Hart passed.
2: It is that time again. AFA, Ask Franchise Anything. We always get a bunch of good questions, but I always like when we get a question from the legendary Lenny and because... He always asks some interesting stuff, but not some generic stuff. You know, we get a lot of you know, the flayer stuff, the vent stuff. I, I like when it's a little bit different and you get a little bit of a of a different flavor of a question and something a little bit more in depth. And I thought this was a really good one. Sent this in via email. It is reported that the ECW backstage was over the top in terms of drinking and open drug use. Is this true? If so, Did you just accept this, or did you try to voice your opinion, and were you against it at all?
1: Uh, A, it was true, but no truer than any other dressing room. Uh, It was probably more noticeable because the dressing room was a lot thinner than other dressing rooms. Uh, You'd walk into a WWE locker room, and it might be four or five locker rooms full of 20, 30, 40, 50 people each. Uh, And ECW had a a general card of, I I don't know, 30, maybe 40 people there or or less, uh, all in one room. Uh, So it was probably more noticeable uh, because of that. But I would say on quantity, it was no different than any of the other promotions that I ever worked for. Uh, But I I did. I, I voiced my opinion at varying times. And the effect that it had at the time was uh, that there were some that listened, some that said, fuck you franchise. Uh, you know, it was all over the place. And I think that in hindsight, I would have approached it differently because at that time, uh, looking back from now to then and seeing it, I think that was the advent of where the, I hate to use the word, but the clicks started opening up in the, in the dressing room. And that to undo that, Took some some overt attention from the entire dressing room to sort of get away from that. You know, uh, you know, I voiced about what a cancer I had seen that been in other dressing rooms. And luckily, you know, we found a responsive audience, a receptive audience to that. But there was an awful lot of drug usage in the UCW dressing room. Uh, but again, no no more so than I saw in WWF, probably not as much as i would seen in WWF or W C W N W A earlier. Uh, I would say more than I saw in UWF, but perhaps I was just young and dumb at that time in UWF and not paying attention to it. Uh, now, look, the wrestling industry is hard. You know, I just saw the, 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 an advertisement for the 350 uh, Days documentary coming out, and you know, from from this from the, the trainer that I watched, I, I I can't wait to see it because it it really does I think shine a light on what it takes for somebody to commit to become a professional wrestler, uh, then commit to becoming a star in professional wrestling, and the uh, the, the unabashed damage that does on your personal life. Uh, marriages are destroyed over it families are broken up uh, you know they're, they're you know, and you, you can't go and say like Steve Williams when his father died couldn't say hey my dad died I'm going to the funeral so he missed his dad's funeral uh, he was needed on the road and you know couldn't get away and you know you hear the, that story ad nauseum over time and uh, you know at, at some point you have to. like I I, I had told a jackass that I had talked to before uh, that worked for the federal government. Uh, when he said to me about Chris Ben watch well, stuff to feel sympathy for you, wrestlers. After all, you make millions of dollars, you live a lavish lifestyle, you take drugs, and you die." Uh, so rather than just motherfuck the guy and cuss him out, I decided to just cat and mouse him a little bit, and uh, I, I, you know, took him through a very typical day of a wrestler, uh, a, a very average day out of seven for a professional wrestler. And at the end of that, he had, this guy had two kids, a son and a daughter that were six, seven, eight years old. And I asked him, I said, well, don't, let me ask you, Mr. We take drugs and, and we die. How long could you run that schedule before you had to drink something, smoke something, pop something, snort something, or shoot something to numb yourself to the physical and emotional pain of missing your kid's first steps, first day at school, first birthday, et cetera. Uh, and there was dead silence on the phone. Uh, and, you know, when I asked him if he was still there, thinking that the call might have disconnected, uh, he said, like, in sort of embarrassed tones, uh, my God, I had no idea. And I said, well, of course you would have an idea. And, but next time you call somebody who's, who's one of their best friends just tragically killed their family and, and committed suicide, you might want to choose your words a little more carefully than asking me the way you asked me. Uh, but, you know, it's... It, it's just a look-see and in, enter, you know, so it's not judging anybody sitting here and saying that any of those dressing rooms had a lot of drug and, and drink drugs and drinking. Uh, that's a very, very common thing in that industry. I don't know how much so today. I, I'm not on the road, on, you know, seven days a week like I used to be. Uh, I hope and I've heard that, you know, the younger generation, this current generation, had by and large learned the lessons that my generation and the previous generation did. I hope that to be true. Uh, they're not on the road as long as we used to be, and hopefully, this these current contracts will lessen some of that for them. Uh, but it was at the time we did it—the 340, 50 days a year that we did—that was incredibly tough uh, on your personal life and you know on your physicality. And the only way to get through that on a seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year basis was to numb yourself in some way. Uh, whether drinking or doing something else. Uh, But I don't know of many wrestlers that didn't drink a beer after a match or – and a lot of others do do other things, you know. So, yeah, uh, and we saw the impact, the negative impact that's had on that, my industry and the industry – my uh, uh, generation and the generation before mine.
0: No, it's absolutely uh, – it's, you know, there's so much you could say that always goes back to what the narrative stays on this show, and it's always, you know, as much as they change, they they don't stay the same, and wrestling's ever-evolving, Shane. But as long as we got the franchise on our team, I could say it's it's always going to be a happy, happy place, uh, to say the least. But as we get to wrap it up here for an episode number 49 – we got to do a little uh, little house cleaning here. Got to give out some plugs. Got to talk about some of the things coming up. And it's two weeks away now. Legends of the Ring, June 9th in New Jersey. Shane, will be there. You'll be there. We'll be joined by Jerry the King Lawler. Dominic DiNucci will be there. Mick Foley will be there. It, it's like a family reunion in New Jersey at uh, the Legends of the Ring convention in Monroe.
1: The first time that me and Dominic and Mick, and Mick have been together... Uh, to be honest with you, I can't remember the last time. It, it may have been Brian Hildebrand's uh, show. Uh, it, it's for Ross Draver. And I I may be wrong on that, but it's been a long time since the three of us have been together in one place. So I'm really looking forward to it. I know Dominic's really looking forward to it.
0: I can't wait to meet Dominic. I, I just can't wait for that whole weekend. It's going to be a uh, a fun time. I saw some of the things that you guys will have going on that weekend, and uh all I could say is uh, the franchise and Dr. D uh, will be doing some appearances together. And, uh, oh, I would love to be a fly on the wall for that one. So I'm sure we'll have some great recaps <laughs> coming yeah, off I, of I'm, that.
1: I am so looking forward to that because uh, Dr. D, David Schultz, was on the very first professional match I ever had in 1982, Thanksgiving Day of 1982, and... Uh, I don't believe I've seen him since. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, to seeing him and re-meeting him. Uh, and I've always enjoyed listening to David talk because he brings, you know, an, uh an unvarnished view. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He says things the way he sees them. Uh, you know, and yeah, as you know, I, I know somebody else that's had a, like a career like that. So <laughs> and took some heat for it, but, uh, You know, he was the original guy that, that at least that I ever watched that did it. And so I am really looking forward to 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 re-meeting and uh, seeing David Schultz again, and and uh, doing some things in the Legends of the Ring. I'm looking forward to that big
0: time. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, and there's going to be just an absolute plethora of wrestling action going on in New Jersey that weekend, also in New York as well. But we also want to drive you to the Pro Wrestling Tees store for the franchise, which is ProWrestlingTees.com slash SD. There you can check out all the brand new franchise t-shirts that are selling like hotcakes. And you can pick one up for yourself, your grandmother, your best friend, your neighbor, anybody who wants one. You can pick up a franchise shirt as well as head on over to WrestlingSuperStore.com and pick up the first franchise action figure to be released in almost 20 years um an unbelievable action figure the figures inc company uh doling out just an amazing figure uh line featuring legends as well as uh some future stars and also just announced that francine is getting her first ever action figure so you can have your your shane figure your francine figure they can uh i guess be paired next to each other and you know just stand there and Do nothing. Just be side by side. Don't get any uh, sick thoughts in your mind, people. But,
1: But, you know, if I could just jump in for a second, I was going to mention that I had mentioned the figures when they first contacted me that, you know, that they ought to reach out to the Bigelow family and the Candido family and talk to Francine because doing a, you know, multiple package of the triple threat I think would be bigger than, you know, they they say the sum of the parts. Uh, I think that a triple threat package would be bigger than a franchise a Francine, a Bam Bam Bigelow, or a Chris Candido doll. Uh because wrestling fans have gotten into that collection phase, you know, where they're collecting the things that they grew up with. So who knows what we'll see down the road. But I just saw today on Twitter the leaked pictures of uh of uh the the early prototypes of the Francine doll and you know we, who knows down the road what you're gonna be able to find. You might have a buelling, might be able to have a little cat fight at your house and and uh you know, put over your own, your own, uh, Vixen, if you will. So, who knows what's coming? But yeah, big things from Figures Toy Company.
0: Pretty cool. Yeah, they, uh, they said that Bigelow, unfortunately, still under the WWE contract for their Legends figures. But, uh, Mr. Candido, definitely uh possibility, which would be very cool, uh, for the Figures Inc. line. They've got Mikey Whipwreck, they've got Shane, they've got the Blue Meanie, and now Francine coming in. So, a lot of cool ECW legends, but check that out. WrestlingSuperstore.com. Purchase yours today. And also head on over to TMPTOfWrestling.com and you can access the Triple Threat Podcast page there and get all the downloads and YouTube videos associated with this show, as well as the Twitter links for Shane, which is at TheFranchiseSD, the Two Man Power Trip Show, which is at Two Man Power Trip, and this show, which is at The3 Threat Pod. And if you want to get your questions in for Ask Franchise Anything, it is the email address of Pod at gmail.com. Please send them in today. We did an all-franchise anything episode last week. It was awesome, a lot of fun, and we're just going to keep on adding to the question uh, block here. So, Shane, I'm going to pass it over to you. Tell us where you're going to be coming this weekend before our big weekend in New Jersey next week. So where's uh, the franchise going to be out in the wild doing his thing this weekend?
1: Well, before I get to that, I'll start by saying we're now, what, three weeks away from the big 52-week uh, anniversary, one-year anniversary. We've got some big guests lined up. You guys may not know. I might put, slide a few secrets in on you as we slide closer to that big one-year anniversary. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking it's like a big, it's the first anniversary I've had in like 15, 16, 17 years. So... <laughs> This is a big, big deal to me. and looking forward to it. Uh, but this weekend, let's put all the bullshit aside for a second. You know, this, kid, this punk, Luke Hawks, has been running around for years, throwing my names around, trying to make a name for himself at my expense. And it just got to the point, finally, where I said enough was enough. And it, it's time to either put up or shut up. And, and so this this Saturday at the ECW Arena, I'll be stepping in the ring, one time only with this piece of shit, to either teach him a lesson, Or get taught a lesson, one way or the other. But as of this weekend, you know, this bullshit, this this never was, ends as far as I'm concerned. And so this weekend I'll be in Philadelphia in the house that I was instrumental in building. So looking forward to this Saturday to take care of a little small-time business in my career. And uh, we'll leave it at that. So three weeks away, the big one-year anniversary this Saturday. Take care of some small-time business thing. Luke Hawks in Philadelphia. And next week, back here for big episode number 49. Make sure you're here or get your ass franchised.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.